0: In Matthew 13, 45 and 46, Jesus gives us this parable. He says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here in this parable, we have a man searching for valuable treasure. And and when he found it, he recognized something incredible about the treasure. Uh, He recognized that this pearl was of far more value to him than the extent of all of his possessions. He recognized he would rather possess this pearl than anything else in the world. Now, of course, to us, it seems a little far-fetched. You know, no house, no car, no food. Who could ever make that trade, no matter how beautiful and luxurious the pearl? You can't eat a pearl. A pearl won't keep you safe, warm, and dry at night. But you see, this pearl that Jesus is referring to is no ordinary pearl. It is a metaphorical pearl. Uh, The pearl for us this morning represents the kingdom of God... And the man in this parable has concluded that citizenship in God's kingdom is of far surpassing value to anything he can find in the world. And thus, without hesitation, he liquefies his estate and makes the trade. Now, of course, Jesus' point in telling this story is not that we sell all our possessions and join a hippie commune. He's making this point... That all who desire to follow him, all who desire citizenship in his kingdom, must necessarily recognize the value of that citizenship. That to dwell with the king of kings now and for eternity is better than anything, and yes, everything that this world can offer. This is the calculation every Christian makes when he or she becomes a Christian. Our eyes are opened and with joy we recognize that Christ, the pearl, is of greater value than all of the things we loved before loving him. And this also means, as we'll see today, that we get into trouble when we assign that same ultimate of value which we should give to the pearl of great price, and we assign that value to ordinary pearls, or ordinary treasure of silver and gold. And when we do that, we assign ultimate value to that which is passing away. And in doing so, we reject that which has eternal value, his kingdom. Well, here in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul is summing up his letter In our text today, he's giving Timothy one last profile of what a wolf or a false teacher looks like. And in this, he argues that a major cause of false teaching in Ephesus, and sometimes even today, uh, is that uh, the false teacher's treasure is literally treasure. Uh, They have devalued eternal citizenship eternal treasure in God's kingdom, and they have elevated temporary earthly treasure. And so in a sense, Paul is turning to Timothy for a final word in this letter, and he says, show me a man whose treasure is in material possessions, and I will show you a false teacher. He says, show me a man whose treasure is God himself, and I will show you a Christian. It's with this in mind that we'll open our passage in verse 2, read it, and pray. He writes, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you today eager to hear from you and grateful that you meet with your people. God, we ask that that would be the case today. Would you empower this preaching of your word by your spirit? Would you feed us your sheep? Would you help us to become more like you as we come to your word in the worshipful adoration? Lord, we love you, and we give you all the honor and all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our first point this morning is the fruit of false teaching. Uh, Paul begins by telling Timothy, Timothy, teach and command these things. Uh, What are these things that he's talking about? He's speaking of the gospel, which he began expounding in chapter 1, and he began giving implications all throughout his letter to Timothy. Uh, What is that gospel? Well, he summed it up in verse 15 of chapter 1, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so he says, Timothy, teach and command the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we can be made right with God. And teach and command all of the wonderful implications and applications which follow. And since we're speaking of the, the fruit of false teaching, I thought it would be helpful if we consider the fruit of uh, biblical gospel ministry before going on. And for this, we'll go back to chapter 1, verse Five. And, and Paul tells Timothy, what is the aim? What is the goal of our ministry? What is the goal of gospel ministry? And he, he says this. He says, the aim of our charge is love. This is chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, this is to be distinguished from what the false teachers are uh, expounding. Uh, He says this in verse 2, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Uh, He's saying that these other teachers that have crept into the church in Ephesus aren't uh, giving you various flavors of the same soda. Uh, He's saying that they are offering you something entirely different. Different. We're not comparing apples to apples. We're not even comparing apples to oranges. They are teaching something which is not Christianity, though they are claiming that it is Christianity. Uh, we saw this in our own country at the beginning of the 20th century. There was a group of academics and pastors and theologians who had determined in all of their elevated and lofty wisdom that the orthodox historic Christian faith was insufficient to meet the needs of modern man. That if Christianity was going to survive, that the very faith had to be modernized so as to be accepted. It could not remain relevant on its own. These people called the modernists then proceeded with their agenda. Uh, They sought to remove all of the supernatural things from the scriptures. They sought to remove miracles and chiefly the miracle of the resurrection. These modernists also determined that modern man would never stand for a God who could possibly be angry at sinners and be wrathful towards sinners for their rebellion against him. That's just simply untenable in their view. And so they did away with the idea of a holy and wrathful God, a God who exercises judgment, and he became a neutered God who never addresses sin. And thus, in doing away with sin and judgment, they also did away with the need for a savior. And so they also were forced to change Jesus Christ. No longer was he seen as the Son of God, No longer was he seen as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as the scripture clearly portrays him to be. But he became a kind of ancient self-help guru. Uh, A moral example that if you sought to follow, you could follow. And if you didn't really want to follow him, you didn't have to. And so they took over seminaries and they took over entire denominations. (laughs) And they propounded that this is the only way that the Christian faith can possibly remain relevant. Thankfully, there were those who opposed them back in the 20s, one of which was J. Gresham Machen, and he wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. He's talking about theological liberalism, he's not talking about politics. But in the book, he argued that liberal Christianity and orthodox Christianity are not two different flavors of the same teaching, but they are two entirely different religions. And I think he's right. The grand irony, of course, is that those who embraced the modernistic view of faith, uh, these entire denominations in churches, are today, a hundred years later, on hospice care or completely extinct. Meanwhile, those who stood for the Orthodox historic Christian faith continue to thrive and to grow. And the question is, why? Because those who maintained divine revelation were standing not upon human wisdom, but upon the objective truth of divine revelation, upon the word of God himself. And so it is that these false teachers are teaching not a different kind of Christianity, but a different religion altogether, which is useless, Paul says. Beyond this, he begins to describe the character of these false teachers. He says they are, they are conceited. They're puffed up with conceit and verse poor, and he understands nothing. Uh, I've heard that if you ever have the opportunity to meet Tom Brady, that he can come off as a little bit arrogant. But you know what? If you're Tom Brady, and you've won seven Super Bowls, multiple league MVPs, multiple Super Bowl MVPs, you know, and you meet him and he comes off as a little cocky to you, I'm not justifying it, but you know, it kind of... It kind of makes sense, right? I mean, this guy is the very best at what he does. If you met Michael Jordan or Serena Williams... ...and and they came off as a little bit coggy to you... ...it's like, well, I kind of get it. Arrogance, yes, it's not a virtue, it's a vice. But, you know, this literally is the goat. Greatest of all time. Sorry, let me define that. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about... ...with regard to these false teachers... Uh, Instead, I I don't don't know if you've ever had this experience, but maybe you're sitting on the couch. uh, I'll give from my perspective as a man. You're sitting on the couch watching a professional sporting event, and uh, you see a professional athlete make a boneheaded mistake. And maybe you care for the team, and you're you're thinking to yourself, and maybe, maybe you're not even really a man until you say this out loud, but you turn to your wife and you say, that was so ridiculous, even I could have done that. I'm sure none of you have said that in your life. That's what Paul's getting at, right? If you sent me into the batter's box against a Red Sox major league pitcher, I can assure you whatever I think about myself, I would strike out 500 times in a row. That's the picture Paul is giving here of these false teachers. He says they are both arrogant and they are ignorant. They are confident And they are mistaken. He uh, describes them again in chapter 1, verse 7. He's kind of doing his greatest hits here. He says, They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Brothers and sisters, whether in church or in life, do not ever mistake Confidence for correctness because plenty of people are confidently wrong. Well, he goes on to describe them. Not only are they arrogant and ignorant, but they have, he says, an unhealthy craving or an unhealthy lust for controversy, for quarrels about words. Listen, there is a place in the church for controversy. There is a place for standing upon objective truth. But again, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying these teachers have a desire to stir the pot just because they like it. They like causing friction, they like causing fault lines, they like going to battle, they like fighting over words. They love fighting over minutia, over things that don't matter. They're willing to sacrifice the unity of the church just so they can be proved right in every single last detail, whether they're right or not. And you can see how if the aim of gospel ministry is love and a sincere conscience and a pure heart, the unity that the gospel produces among us, You can see how the false gospel is producing all kinds of terrible things. And so it is that Paul now turns to the fruit of this false teaching. What does this fruit produce in the church and in the lives of those who listen to it? He says this in verse 4. It produces envy. The church is envious of one another. They don't want other people to have good things. They are jealous of the success of others. It creates dissension. Uh, This family no longer talks to this family. And and I'm using arbitrary hand motions, by the way. Um, (laughs) I was pointing at my own family. Uh, you know this this click over here doesn't allow anyone else into the, uh, into their clique unless unless they decide that they want to associate and meanwhile, Paul's whole point in Ephesians four is that we are all sinners saved by the grace of God, that we are baptized into one baptism, that we are all separate members of one body, that we have a unity that transcends all kinds of demographic differences but false teaching does away with all of that, so much so that he says they are slandering one another. Oh God, help us not to be a church that ever slanders our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us not to be a church that slanders anyone. But the slander has such an effect that it says it produces evil suspicions right there at the end of chapter 4. And that word for suspicions in Greek carries with it the connotation of a baseless suspicion... So not only is it an evil suspicion, but it's not even true. People are at each other's throats, they're paranoid, they're thinking that this person has said something about them or done something wrong to them, and it's not even the case. But such is what happens when we embrace false teaching. It happened in the churches that embraced modernism, and it can happen to any church. And so then it's no surprise that if true gospel ministry produces godliness in those who hear it, uh, false teaching produces constant friction, he says. And those who adhere to it are both depraved in mind, it distorts their thinking, and they are distorted in their thinking because they have been deprived of the truth. Why is false teaching false? Very simple answer. Because it is not true. Well, at the end of verse 5, we get a glimpse of our next point. He says this, what, what is, so we've, we've discussed the fruit of false teaching. It's a body that no longer looks like Christ. And at the end of verse 5, we find the root of false teaching. These teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain, or the word could be translated as profit. These false teachers are in ministry not to glorify God, not to take care of the sheep, but rather to fleece the sheep, to feast upon the sheep, to make themselves rich through ministry. And so it doesn't surprise us that the rotten root affects the fruit. That love of money would distort their thinking and their teaching. And we'll get into that in our next point. But I just want to give two applications before we move on. Number one uh, is this. There are many people... ...and resources today who claim to be propounding Christian truths... ...but in reality what they are expounding is not Christianity. There are many today who would appeal to your flesh... ...to your base nature, to your sinful nature... ...in an effort to convince you uh, that what they are saying is true. But you see, as Christians we are called to value truth as revealed to us in the word of God, over those who would appeal to our flesh. And trust me, there are plenty of these people today. Secondly, as congregationalists, and as we look for teachers in our own church, uh, we want to ask ourselves, what is it that appears to be this person's treasure? Is Christ this person's treasure, or is treasure this person's treasure? Uh, What does this person's teaching produce uh, with those with whom he has influence? Is it producing godliness and love and peace and joy? Or is it producing greed and dissension and envy and friction? Well, those are just two quick applications. Let us turn now from the fruit of false teaching to the root of false teaching. Pick up with me in verse 9. We'll skip a few verses and come back to them later. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So he says here that in verse 6, I can find it, um, verse 9 rather, that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Uh, note here that he's not saying that wealth is inherently sinful. He's, he's arguing that the desire for riches and the love of money is sinful and a special temptation. There are those whom God blesses with wealth, and they are generous with their wealth, and they can live faithful lives as Christians. But he is making the argument that uh, love of money and desire for riches is not a good thing. Now, we can certainly understand that there are advantages to wealth. Nobody disputes that. And I don't know if you would ever say something like this out loud, but I feel like many of us at least have some concept in our minds that more money, more resources, equals more happiness, or security, or joy, or contentment. Of course, none of us would ever say that out loud. Uh, we know that the Bible would undercut that notion. Um, there were actually two recent studies, peer-reviewed studies, which examined this, one in 2010, one in 2017, and they found that uh, the notion was actually true, up to a point, that there were higher levels of self uh, self-reported happiness and contentment up to a certain point, and that point was the point in which you are able to comfortably pay your bills. For one study, they said that was about $76,000 in North America. The next study said it was about $100,000 annually. Uh, at that point, when you're able to not have to worry about your money, Uh, That is where happiness, self reported happiness, tops out. They said anything above that point actually decreases happiness. So imagine that. Uh, Turns out the Bible might actually know what it's talking about. Well, what does he say of this desire to be rich? He calls it a special temptation. Again, uh, wealth is not inherently sinful. Abraham was wealthy, Lydia was wealthy but to desire to be rich is a special temptation and in the paul borrows from admiral akbar when he says uh, actually it's a trap it's a snare is the word he uses it looks inviting it looks alluring but it leads to destruction when i was in high school i had a buddy who had a house on the saint john's river in in Florida, and many afternoons we would go out onto his dock, which jutted out hundreds of feet onto the river, and we would go fishing, or we would cast nets for shrimp, or whatever it was, it was was a good time. Uh, At the end of the dock, we had also tied a crab trap to the edge of the dock, and uh, what we would do is maybe we caught some fish that we didn't want to eat, and And so we would pull the crab trap up out of the water. It was a large box, which was really easy to get into if you were a crab, uh, but nearly impossible to get out of. And within that box, there was another box in which you would place the bait. So what we would do is we'd take some fish that we didn't really want to eat, and we would cut the fish in half so that it would be leaking its alluring aroma uh, to all of the crabs, Actually, that's, that's not a bad analogy for the allure of riches. A uh, Stinking, rotting fish. And uh, we'd put it in the crab trap, and crabs could not resist it. So we'd toss it into the water, and then you would come back the next day and pull it up, and the trap would be full of crabs. Well, I want you to imagine, for the sake of this illustration, imagine that you are a crab on the riverbed of the St. John's River, and you're just going about your business, and you catch a scent, or you're looking at this glorious uh, piece of fish that's hanging out there before you, you think to yourself, I could feast on this for weeks. I would be so happy if I could just have this fish. And so you quickly make your way over to it, and you see this box, and you don't think twice about it. You quickly climb into the box, and you notice that the box is full of other crabs. And so you start, you know, elbowing your way, uh, over to get to the fish. I don't, I don't know if crabs actually have elbows. Maybe they have a lot of elbows. Um, and, and you're just working your way over to the fish. You just want to get to this glorious bait fish that is rotting and stinking and so delicious. And you finally make it, and you realize that there's a box around the fish, and you can only get little bits and pieces, and you strive, and you try to get to that fish, but you can never truly get satisfied on that fish. And so eventually you get frustrated and you give up and you try to leave the box and go find something else. But it's a crab trap, really easy to get into, impossible to get out of. And so you're trapped and then the next day, I pull you up out of the water and me and my buddies clean you, toss you into piping hot cast iron skillet with some shrimp and some fried fish fillets and we're having a great day. Uh, The crab's not having a great day, but but we are. Kind of makes you want to close up and go have lunch. Well, that was an unnecessarily extended illustration upon what it's like to love money. Clearly, we are the crabs in that illustration, and the fish is the allure ...of riches. And Paul is saying... ...that the fish... ...looks really alluring. It is so easy... ...it is so easy to be seduced by money. It promises you all kinds of things... ...but like the trap... ...it doesn't truly deliver. It's rotten fish... ...and you can't even get to it. Before we know it... ...Paul says... ...look what Paul says... ...in verse... ...9. He says... ...into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The cast iron skillet of judgment. It's a warning for us. He's saying, yes, these false teachers love money and he turns to the ordinary Christian and he says, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the lie that riches are going to satisfy you. He goes on in verse 10 and he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. He says, not only is money bad for us, not only does it plunge us to ruin and destruction, but it actually causes us to do additional evils. Now, I want to be, be clear. He's, he's not saying how it's uh, often misattributed that money is the root of all evil. That's not what he says. He says, money is a root of all kinds of evils. He's saying that you, if you love money, will justify all sorts of other things which displease God to get to that money. We already saw that the false teachers loved money, and so they were willing to uh, distort the gospel. They were willing to feast on the sheep and lead them away from God and his kingdom if it meant that they could have their filthy lucre in this life. And there are many still today who do that. But it's also not hard to see how greed could lead to other sins, is it? Think about this, the greedy person may cheat on his taxes or cook the books at work or overcharge a client or exaggerate expenses and pocket the difference. Think about how many siblings stop talking to each other because when it became time to uh, divide their father's estate, something fishy happened. And so they throw away their relationships for the sake of money. Or how many curmudgeons in the church refuse to give generously for any number of outward reasons, but the real reason is because they are loath to depart from their real treasure? How many parents give so much of themselves at work that they have nothing left for their families, all in the name of getting to that next level of comfort or security? How many political leaders or judges are willing to sacrifice the good of their constituents to take a lucrative bribe. We could go on, but it's not hard to see how love of money can lead to all sorts of additional problems. Paul says something even more terrifying. He says this in verse 10, it is through this craving, this love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You say, well, how is that? Love of money could take me away from God. Well, love of money is the choosing of earthly treasure over eternal treasure. Jesus, when he summarized the the Ten Commandments and he gave us the greatest commandment, what did he say? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. In other words, he's saying you should love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And you may think you're the rare bird who loves money and God, but Jesus says it can't be done. He says no man can serve two masters. You cannot love both God and money. Now I want to say something to you that's incredibly profound. I want to illustrate this for you. I want you to imagine that you're holding a donut in this hand. And in your other hand you have... Two donut holes. Have you ever tried to put two donut holes into a single hole of a donut? I told you this is profound. So if you take a first donut hole and you place it into the hole of a donut, what do you have? You have a, a complete, maybe you take a chocolate donut hole, you place it in the donut, you've got a complete donut, there's no hole. That's, we'll say that's love of God. But let's say you have a second donut hole and you want both of those donut holes to fit in there. Well, what happens when you take the second donut hole and you try to push it into that hole of the donut? It pushes the other donut out. And now you've got like jelly filled or something. We'll call that love of money. There's only room for one donut hole inside the hole of a donut. You're never going to forget that. (laughs) The point is this. That when it comes to our affections... Money demands our highest affections, but by the way, so does God. Money demands our highest allegiance, but so does God. And so we have to choose. Will we treasure God or will we treasure earthly possessions? When we turn to the Gospels, we see that Jesus actually talks about greed all the time. I mean, the Bible is replete with warnings about love of money. And let me suggest that Jesus wouldn't talk about it all the time unless it were actually a problem for his people, a significant and widespread issue. It is an incredibly seductive God. But I have to admit that it is rare that I have ever heard a Christian confess, yeah, you know what? I'm actually a really greedy person. I love money. I want double-charged my own grandmother when she came into my shop. (laughs) Right? So we hear these commands against greed, these warnings against greed and greedy people, and we all have an idea of who that is. But remarkably, it's never us. It seems like we're willing to own up to all kinds of sins, but nobody ever owns up to greed. I mentioned before that it's, it is possible to be faithful to God and rich. But we all automatically put ourselves into that category without a second thought. Maybe we hear a sermon like this and we think, oh yes, I've got a friend who really should listen to this sermon. Well, I admit that greed is notoriously difficult to diagnose from the outside. But this morning, I, as your pastor, don't want to let you off the hook for love of money. I don't want to let me off the hook. Greed is like a stealth aircraft that sneaks in under the radar and blows you to smithereens before you ever even notice it. So I want to give you some diagnostics to help improve the greed-sensing radar in your own heart. And as I do this, I admit that I do not know your hearts. I'm not God. This is for your benefit, not so I can have some kind of moral high ground. First of all, we want to remember that you... Uh, can be poor as dirt and love money just as much as any Ebenezer Scrooge. Secondly, what we value and what we love is revealed in what we do with our time and our resources. Let me say that again. What we love and what we value is revealed in what we do with our time and what we do with our resources. So if I'm to to compile a a budget of my time, what will that reveal to me? Let me suggest that we might be too biased to answer honestly for ourselves. But if if you compiled a budget of your time and allowed a brother or a sister to examine it, what would that data reveal to you about what you love, what you value? To what purpose do you give your time? What keeps you up late at night, constantly, as you think about it? So that's one diagnostic. Secondly, we can learn a lot from our own monthly financial budgets. What are your largest expenditures every month? Okay, we all have to live, and this is an expensive place to live. Mortgages and rent are expensive. Outside of that, what is your largest expenditure Every month. Might I suggest that's what you value? Here's another question How does your charitable giving compare to your largest expenditures? I assure you, I'm not picking on anyone. I have access to total giving at the church, I don't have access to individuals. But it's a helpful question for us to ask ourselves what do we value? What puts me in a good mood? Are my mood swings tied to the market swings? When the market is up, am I chipper? When the market is down 20% on the year, is my mood down 20% on the year? Am I hard to be around? I'm not saying I know whether this is true of any of you. I'm just giving you these questions. But let's say that in considering these diagnostic questions, you may have found some seedlings of greed in your own heart. What are we to do with that? same thing we do with all sin. We bring it to Christ, we confess our sins, and he totally absolves us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then secondly, in prayer, we ask him that by the power of his spirit, he would help us to overcome even our love of money. And he is faithful and just to do that. But thirdly, as we seek to fight that sin, it's not simply enough to say I, I want to avoid being greedy. Rather, the Scripture gives us language of uh, taking off the old self, like taking off an old tattered robe, and putting on the new self. We have to replace that greed with something else. One must replace greed with generosity. And while I do think the primary place for a Christian to give is the local church, I don't think it's the exclusive place for a, local, for a Christian to give. There are many ways to be generous. But let us at least take the allure of riches and the danger of money love seriously. Well, it is with this idea of freedom from love of money to which we now turn in our last point of the day as we consider true Christian treasure. This is verses 6 to 8. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So Paul has said these false teachers err because they love making profits in ministry. Uh, Love of money is self-destructive. But here in these short verses, Paul gives us a brief calculation which shows us the futility of chasing things. In doing this, he essentially says what you all know, you cannot take it with you. And in doing this, he echoes Christ who asks the question, What does it do, or what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You came into this world with nothing, Paul says, and you'll leave this world with nothing. My older brothers and sisters in the faith, I have been repeatedly told how quickly kids grow up and how quickly life passes you by. And in my many years on this earth, I have found this to be true. It seems like just yesterday I was going to church with my own parents as a child, and now I'm about to have three children of my own to take to church. And let me ask you, As you look back on your own life, does it seem like it has stretched on forever? Or does it seem like you went to bed one night and woke up 20 years later? Our lives are short. James says our lives are like a mist, here for a moment and then vanishing. And if that's true, we have to ask ourselves, what treasure will we value? What treasure does it make the most sense to value? Now, to this point, the materialistic or the the hedonistic person says, yes, that's true, life is short, and that's why I fill my life with the pursuit of pleasure, which involves (coughs) the acquiring of things. He who dies with the most toys and the most experiences wins. You only live once. YOLO, live for the moment. And I think I would respond along these lines. Love of money is a dangerous lifestyle which does not produce the joy and satisfaction which it promises. And we already considered the sociological data. There is some enjoyment of wealth in this world, but brothers and sisters, it pales in comparison to the joy of having Jesus Christ as your treasure. If you pursue worldly things, you may enjoy them for the length of time. It takes a mist to vanish, but you can't take it with you. God says you can't have him as your treasure and money as your treasure. Earthly treasure lasts for a lifetime, but heavenly treasure lasts for eternity. But consider this with me. Consider the calculation. Do you see how this requires faith? This calculation requires faith for it to make sense. If I truly believe that I'm made right with God through faith, I'll spend eternity with Him in perfect bliss, then I'm not going to seek to store up treasures for myself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. My life is a drop in the bucket with compar- with, in comparison to the uh, enormity of eternity. If I truly believe that I have an inheritance in heaven, then I live now to maximize my experience for eternity. That's why Jesus says store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. You see if this life is all that we get. If there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no future hope with Christ. If there is no future hope for us as Christians. Then brothers and sisters you should be out skiing this morning. That's where I would be. But if we do have a hope if we do have a future if there is resurrection of the dead then we should live not for this life but for eternity it's a very simple calculation but it's a calculation which requires the eyes of faith we'll close with Paul's statement which seems ordinary but I promise you this might be the most extraordinary thing he says in the entire passage he says if we have food and clothing basic necessities we will be content. I'm, I'm always baffled because I, I come across people who think that the Bible is outdated and it's not relevant to their everyday lives, that it has no bearing for them and they just tune out. But just consider this statement with me for a moment. Paul says, I can be content with basic necessities. Listen, we live in a world of discontented people. A world full of jealousy, envy, and greed. We live in a world where people are enslaved to these idols of comfort and money and power and significance and security. And God is telling you this morning that you actually can be free from all of that. Imagine with me just for a moment. Christ offers you a contentment and a satisfaction and a peace and a joy that cannot be extinguished by outward circumstances... Because it is not dependent on your outward circumstances. Christ can enable you to be content in your wealth... ...and in your basic necessities. Imagine with me. Just just think about it. What could that look like in my life if I were truly content? If I could just rest in the knowledge... That Christ has given me exactly what is best for me. That God is out for my good. How many other problems in life would that solve if I could truly be content in Christ? Well, we live in a world in which no one is content. But I'm going to give you three reasons why a Christian can be content, and we'll close. Number one. A Christian is content because we know what we deserve. We know to what we are entitled. A Christian has come to recognize that I am a sinner. I violated God's law and his design. I, a worm on this mud pile, had the audacity to defy the almighty living creator of the universe and not think twice about it. Christian is someone who recognizes that that is true about me and that because of that I deserve his wrath and his judgment that's what Christianity teaches you are not okay just as you are the world wants to teach you that that's not what Christianity says Christianity says you are a sinner and unless something is done about that you are under the wrath of God that's what you're entitled to that's what you deserve An eternity under his wrath. But thank God that's not the end of the story, right? That would be very depressing. Christians also are content because we recognize what we receive is not what we deserve. We're aware of the grace that we've received instead. Because Jesus came and died on the cross. He paid my debt. He satisfied God's wrath against me. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. It wasn't something I've earned. It's not something I deserve. But it's something I've freely received as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And that means that eternal life with him is part of the deal. I deserved everlasting judgment. I receive eternal bliss. Now, I don't want to be crass, but in light of eternity and in light of that disparity, what difference does it make if my neighbor has more than I do? I'm an heir to the king of the universe. I can call the almighty creator father and it's true. Does that blow your mind? Come on, I got to get an amen for that. Is this a Baptist church? Money is temporary. The blessings of God are forever. The third reason is this. Because when you possess Christ as your treasure, you experience his blessings, not just in the future. Our hope is a future hope, but it's a hope that starts the moment you believe. Jesus Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and bring contentment and joy and peace in a way that nothing else in this world can. And it starts the moment you believe. And that's why Christians can be content. In all circumstances. Consider Paul's words in Philippians 4. And we'll close. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, because I have Christ who strengthens me, I can face abundance or poverty, (coughs) and I can be content because I know that his grace is better than anything this world offers. Dear friends, I don't know what you are struggling with this morning. I don't claim to know whether you are resting content in the grace of God or whether you are slavishly pursuing worldly pleasures. But I do know this. It is possible for you to find contentment in your creator. You can be happily content in Jesus Christ. He can free you from the love of money or from any other aisle this world offers. And believe me, he is better. I'd encourage you to try it for yourself. Don't settle for less than what you don't deserve. Let God be your treasure. Let's pray.